We're a pioneer church based in Loughborough in the UK. Our mission is to make disciples to establish heaven on earth. Well, it's, like I said, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, to share a few thoughts with you. So, yeah, thank you. Look, uh, I'm going to share a few thoughts. I'm going to share from the heart. We're going to use the screen as well. And um, I want to suggest that, look, this, this generation, your generation of uh, 18 to 30s, the millennial generation, is perhaps one of the most... Um, um, it's probably the generation that's most open to diversity and most open to uh, difference. Um, and I think there's a lot of work going on and a lot of work that's taking place in terms of how people see people from different cultures and different places. And I think um, God in his grace has caused this generation to be around for this season with the stuff that's going on over the last two years, particularly with George Floyd and uh, the kind of resurgence in the interest in equality, diversity, inclusion right across the world and right across organizations. And I won't bore you with some of the stuff that we do. Um, but there's still a need. Because if, um, you're, if you're born in the UK, if you're born in England, you've been unconsciously socialized through culture to believe certain things that even you don't know you believe. The same is true for me. And it's the, part, it's the job of the Holy Spirit to put his finger on those things. The psalmist said, Lord, search me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Because David knew that he had been so accustomed to his sin and his culture that God had to point out some things in him if he was going to find freedom from them. And that's true for you and it's true for me. Because we're dealing with race today, I'm going to point out some of those things in relation to race. But they're also true in relation to me. I grew up in a predominantly African culture, uh, which is very male-centered. And sometimes I find myself falling into assumptions about women. And I have to redeem my thinking uh, to make sure they're in line with what Christ is saying. My dad had a stroke um, and he couldn't work because he was paralyzed. But I find myself sometimes falling into um, the thoughts that I would rather not have about people that have a disability. Because the culture has taught me that if you don't have two eyes, two legs, two arms, and if they're not all functioning well, then you're not quite as valuable as somebody who does. The culture has unconsciously taught me to internalize that. And I don't have to pretend that that's not true. I just have to accept it as my responsibility to manage my own thinking and to bring that to the cross and allow Christ to do a work of restoration and a work of healing. And so what we're not trying to do this afternoon is say to you that because you may have thoughts that center around seeing black people or other people that are not white in a particular way, we're not trying to say you're evil. We're not even trying to say you're bad. We're trying to say that's the consequence of sin. And that's the consequence of sin in our culture. And I was saying this morning that um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 following, that we take every thought captive. The Greek word for thought is argument. It literally means argument. And what the Apostle Paul seems to be saying is that as we live in a society where there are philosophies and ideologies that conflict and contest with one another, it's our responsibility as Christians to take the arguments that are not consistent with what Christ says and to hold them captive, to bring them to the cross. And one of those arguments that we have to hold captive in our minds, irrespective of who we are, 
is the argument about the equality of black people in relation to white people. That's a reality. That's the society in which we live. Even for people whose minds are very open and people who are very liberal, what we often find is that an incident or an occasion happens and all of a sudden, the kind of prejudice or discrimination that doesn't surface begins to surface. That doesn't mean an individual is bad or an individual is wrong. And this morning we explored that in the book of Acts. You know Acts is the beginning of the birth and the expansion of the church. It's a fascinating story as you, as you read through the story of Acts, particularly as you read through it historically, not just in terms of what you see on the surface. Um, it's very interesting. Acts chapter 1, we read about a fellow called Peter. He's a brilliant guy, but, you know, Peter's, I said this morning, Peter's spontaneous. That means it's potentially dangerous. You can't really control him. One minute you think he's going to do one thing, the next minute he's doing another thing. Peter's quite dangerous. But in Acts chapter 1, everybody's uh, frightened and intimidated because Jesus has ascended to heaven. And everyone's intimidated and frightened. And Peter says, look, it says in the Psalms that when this guy called Judas kills himself, we've got to elect another person. So Peter's right in the very center of recentering the purpose of God when everyone else was frightened to do anything because of the intimidation of the Roman Empire. So Peter was quite instrumental. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, everyone is carried away speaking in tongues, and Peter says, well, actually, we've got to do some preaching here. Nobody suggested Peter to preach. Peter stood up voluntarily, and he spoke. And before we knew it, there was thousands of people added to the church. It was brilliant. You look at Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2. If you read a book on the speeches in Acts, and you look at Peter's speech, and you analyze it, it's phenomenal. Peter reinterprets Old Testament history and theology in the light of the contemporary risen Christ and brings people into an understanding of who Jesus is. It's an absolute masterpiece of public speaking and rhetoric. He's, he's a genius. Acts chapter 3, everyone's a bit frightened, not sure whether to go to the temple or not. Peter jumps out and goes to the temple. He sees a blind man and he says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. The first miracle in a New Testament church. Back down to Peter. Brilliant guy. Acts chapter 4, they take Peter uh, before the Sanhedrin. That's like a religious authority. And they say to Peter, listen, you're no longer to speak in the name of Jesus. And uh, Peter says, none of that. We can't but speak of what we know and what we experience. And Peter says, if you flog me, which they did, he says, I'll leave and I'll be happy because I think I'm, I, it's a pleasure to be flogged for Jesus. Peter is at the very heart from Acts chapter 1 for the first, let's say, eight or nine chapters, maybe chapter, maybe up to chapter 15, actually, let's say. Peter's the heart of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 5, so there's a dispute uh, with Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they see Barnabas sell all his goods. And when they see Barnabas sell his goods and bring them to the apostles, they think we want to be like and we want to be like Barnabas. So they decide to sell uh, some of their land and some of their houses, and then they pretend to the apostles that they sold it for £100 when they sold it for £150 because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Both of them died. They were killed by God, by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 6, sorry, we have a problem. The problem is there are some Jews that are from the Hellenistic Jews. They're from the Roman... Um, environment. Then there's the Hebraic Jews. And they get into a contest because there's some discrimination against who gets what. And so there's a big dispute. 
And what's fascinating is this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to the end, and Acts chapter 4, it says the community was absolutely perfect. Everybody had everything in common. They prayed together. In Acts chapter 4, their prayers were so powerful that the Holy Spirit shook the place where they were. That's how powerful it was. And all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 6, we've got a problem. We've got to ask ourselves a simple question. Did the problem about discrimination happen in Acts chapter 6, or was it there from Acts chapter 1? And the reality is that the problem never just happened in Acts chapter 6. There is no perfect church. The issue of race and the issue of diversity and inclusion and exclusion doesn't just pop up. What we see in Acts chapter 6 is that the church did have everything in common, according to chapter 2. It did pray together, like it says in chapter 4, and everybody's needs were met. But what we realize in Acts chapter 6 is that not everybody's needs were met equally. There was systemic discrimination and exclusion within the church. And the the Hellenistic Jews got fed up with it in Acts chapter 6 and began to speak about it. Now, if you read Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 in the context of them sharing everything, what you begin to realize is that they were sharing everything, but they weren't sharing it equally. There were some groups that were getting stuff that other groups weren't getting. And by the time they got to Acts chapter 6, the groups that weren't getting what other groups were getting said, hell no, we're not standing for this, we're going to speak up. And that's what's happening in the church with African and Caribbean and Asian communities. It's not as if this moment of discrimination and this moment of advocacy and this moment of being verbal is new. There's been a historic uh, context to the issue of advocacy around equality within the church. If any of you know anything about the 1950s, you would know that hordes of people came from Africa and the Caribbean, particularly the Caribbean, and they wanted to join Baptist churches, they wanted to join Methodist churches, they wanted to join Church of England churches, which were established during the missionary movement and after the missionary movement, in order to become a part and parcel of those institutions, and they were told that you couldn't become a part of that institution. In the 1950s and 60s, the Windrush generation came to the UK and they were excluded from churches, so they began to set up other churches. So this problem around discrimination within the church and systemic exclusion is not about George Floyd. It's been happening well before George Floyd. When George Floyd came along, it's the African and Caribbean and Asian community said, hell no, we're putting our foot down again. We're going to be like the Hellenistic Jews in Acts chapter 6. Yes, the church has got all things in common. Yes, the church has been praying, but we're now going to be vocal and we're going to advocate about the difference that we uh, see. It was a brilliant solution. The apostles got together, they had a conversation, and they resolved the matter. It was absolutely brilliant. Peter was part of the ones that resolved the situation. Isn't it interesting? Peter resolved the situation in Acts chapter 2 in terms of the Holy Spirit coming, and he spoke to people from different parts of the world. People from uh, all over the world were there. Peter was the one who spoke to them and invited them into the church. When there's a dispute in Acts chapter 6, Peter's the one, along with the other apostles, who brings a resolution. So we're at this stage thinking Peter's a brilliant guy. Because the Holy Spirit showed him in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6 that everyone's equal. And then we get to Acts chapter 10, and it's a shock. Peter's praying on the roof. And God says to him, you're hungry. I know you're hungry. Gives him a vision of these sheets with different animals on it and says to him, eat. And Peter says, no, I'm not going to eat. The first lesson I said to them this morning is this. When God wants to deal with us about racism, he doesn't deal with us in groups. He tends to deal with us as individuals. I referred to an experiment that took place in the 1950s with a guy called Solomon Ask, and you can read, read about it online. 
It's a psychological experiment. It's very simple. He gets people to answer a question. He says this. He puts two pictures up. He says there's a line on the left-hand side, one line, and there's three lines on the right-hand side. He says which line on the right-hand side uh, matches the line on the left-hand side? And the people say line number two, B. He says, brilliant. He brings in some actors and actresses who are going to say something different. So he asks a question again. Which line on the right-hand side matches the line on the left-hand side? The actors and actresses say line number three. The students who said it was line number two, i.e. B, argue with the students, the actors that come in and said, no, it's line number, it's line number two, B. They leave them in the room for a while, and slowly but surely, before you realize it, they come to a unanimous agreement. The question is asked again, which line on the right-hand side matches the line on the left-hand side? And the whole room, 100% agrees. It's line C, number three. Despite knowing it's line B, number two. It was an exercise in what they call social conformity. What they realized is that if there's enough pressure within a group to belong, even though we know what's wrong, we will say that it's right because we do not want to face the wrath of the group. And the reality is this is what was happening in the New Testament church. We like to talk about the New Testament church as if it was different to our church. Nobody asked them to bring anything. They saw Barnabas bring it, and because they wanted to be like Barnabas, but they didn't want to give everything that Barnabas was willing to give, they wanted to hold some money back. It was about social conformity. We want to be seen to be what we're not, and so we're going to act as if we are. And the reality is that is what happens when it comes to race and racism in the church. Nobody wants to say, look, I've been praying this week because God's told me I'm a racist. Nobody wants to say this week, God's challenging me about the way I treat people from Asia or people from Africa or people from the Caribbean. Or God's been challenging this week about the way I treat people with disabilities or the way I treat people um, uh, with a different sexuality or wh whatever it is. We just don't do it because we actually seek to project ourselves in a particular way. And what's happening with Peter is that it's, the question is not whether Peter knows he's discriminating. The question is what happens, what, how does Peter respond when God points it out? And what we see in the book of Acts chapter 10 is that Peter doesn't respond well. But God had to wait to get Peter alone in order to talk to him about his heart because he couldn't talk to him when everyone else was present because there was too much pressure for Peter to be, to conform. And the reality is that for you and I, if you learn anything from today, what you've got to learn is that if we're going to get to the bottom of this issue of racism, you're going to have to deal with God alone. Peter was on the roof alone. He was the charismatic leader of the New Testament church. He had a prophetic mandate in his life. Jesus told him in Acts chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Peter was spirit-filled, born again, a leader within the church, charismatic gift, pioneering ministry, and yet he had a heart that was discriminated against people that were different. It's very possible to be a Christian and be racist. It's very possible to be a Christian and discriminate against people on the basis of their difference of color and culture or class or education. It's very possible. That's what, the, that's what the story of Peter tells us. And you know what's very sad about the story of Peter? In Acts chapter 10, God speaks to him, catches him alone and says, Peter, I want to challenge you about your discriminatory practices. God catches Peter alone. The second thing we read, Peter thinks about what God is saying to him. 
And then the third thing we read is that Peter, when God challenges him, God says, Peter says to God, I can't do that. I can't eat those 30 things. What is interesting, and I'm condensing this, is interesting is this. When God made the physical universe in, in Genesis chapter 1, he spoke once. And the whole of the physical universe responded to God and fell into alignment with what God was saying. God had to speak to Peter three times about the condition of his heart. That tells you how deep this issue of discrimination and racism goes, how deeply conditioned we can be by it, that God has to speak to a spirit-filled, pioneering believer that has a prophetic mandate on his life and a pioneering ministry who walked with Jesus Christ himself. God has to speak to him three times in order to get the guy to move. And praise God, Peter, Peter moved. And Peter followed them to Cornelius' house. The Bible says, the Holy Spirit said to him, when they come, three guys are coming to meet you. When they come, go with them. Peter says, cool. What the Holy Spirit was saying to Peter is this, move from your comfort zone into a learning zone. Go to Cornelius' house. You're comfortable in Joppa. You're comfortable in the house of Tana. But I want you to move from that comfortable place into a space where you're now learning from the comfort zone into the learning zone. And the reality is that's the consequence of what God wants from each of us. That we're comfortable. We can be comfortable in our various environments. We can be comfortable in our various um, friendship groups, comfortable in our family groups. But God is saying, actually, that's not good enough for a born-again believer because I fundamentally died so that the whole of the physical creation will be reconstituted and renewed according to God's cosmic project of regeneration where everybody connects with one another. I related this to Genesis chapter 1 where it says, God made the heavens and the earth and at the end of every day, God said, this is good. The Hebrew word for good is tuf. It's a very powerful word. It's the word for good. In the Hebrew, there's no inherent goodness. You can't be good because you've got a Mercedes or good because, you, you know, you've got a nice personality. In Hebrew, the word tuv, good, means you relate to something in the way you're supposed to relate to it. And so when God says this is very good, he's saying what I did yesterday fits in perfectly with what I did today. That there's synchronicity. There's consistency. That's why it, you just can't be good on your own. Goodness in Hebrew thought is in relation to something else. So in Hebrew thought, a mini that is bashed up, that takes a sick person to hospital, is a good car and not a Porsche that could get them there faster, but the driver won't yield up the car because he doesn't want blood on it. There is no inherent goodness. It's all about relational goodness. And God says, actually, what I've created is very good. It's perfect in relation to each other. And so as we come into the New Testament, what we see is that God is involved in this project of regenerating. And God is looking for how we relate to one another. Not goodness in terms of a culture, not goodness in terms of a personality, not goodness in terms of a psychological profile, but goodness in terms of who we are. And it seems like Peter gets that message when he's at Joppa. And we celebrate, we say, praise God, Peter had discrimination against the Gentiles, and then he goes to Cornelius' house. The Holy Spirit does a brilliant work. Acts chapter 15, the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter is leading, um, he's part of a delegation where they're talking about what happened at Joppa, Acts chapter 10. It's the first apostolic council in the history of the church. 
We have other councils that come out of that. Chancellor and Nicaea and all those councils. Anybody who studied church history will come across them. But the first apostolic council to establish orthodoxy was held in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, based on Peter's experience on Acts chapter 10. Now, you know what's funny? Read about Peter in the book of Galatians chapter 1 through to chapter 3. He's fallen back into his old habits. Paul gets saved four to seven years after Jesus Christ ascended in Acts chapter 9. He then tells us in Galatians chapter 1 through to 3 about the integrity of the gospel. He says if anybody in chapter 1 comes to you with a false, with a gospel that's, con- that's inconsistent with what we said, he said, let them be accursed. Paul is saying the only legitimate gospel that exists and will ever exist is the gospel of Christ. Then he tells us a story. He says, I went up to Jerusalem three years after I was converted. So he was in Jerusalem seven to ten years after his conversion. That's when he first met Peter, James, and John, according to Galatians. I could be wrong. There's different interpretations, but it seems like makes sense to me. If it was, say, three to four years after, you add another three to four years, it's, you're talking about between six and seven years. Um, or four to seven years, sorry. You're, you're talking about seven to, seven to ten years. He says, I met them three to four years after I was uh, born again. He says that in chapter one. Then he says, I met them again 14 years later. So you can do the maths. I won't bore you with that. But what's very interesting is this. This Peter, who was transformed in Acts chapter 10, by the time we get to Galatians chapter 1, is completely back to his old tricks. Paul says to him, why is it that you behave in a way that's duplicious and inconsistent with what you know because you're afraid of people? He says, I don't understand something, Peter. When the Jews are around, the Hebrew people, You don't mix with the Gentiles. But when they're not around, you do. And he says, I had to call him out because he was so deeply duplicious and it was an inconsistency with the gospel. There's something very powerful here that we need to learn about race and racism. That even when God starts to do a work in us, it has to keep being worked on. Because we have a natural inclination whether it's males over females, able-bodied over less able-bodied, whether it's black against white, whatever it is, we have a natural disposition to revert back to our natural conditions. And God challenges us through telling us the story of Peter. And he says to Peter, you know what? The problem with you is that you suffer from performative allyship. Now, everyone is talking about being an ally in our society today. And an ally is someone who stands with a marginalized community and advocates for them. But it didn't take long for the Peter or the Paul of the EDI world to come along. The EDI world is equality, diversity, inclusion. And say to people, you know what? Your supposed allyship is more about performance than it is about integrity and authenticity. And this is what the problem was with Peter. Peter was being privileged by acting in a double-minded way. When certain people were around, he was an ally. When other people were around, he wasn't an ally. And the danger for your generation is that actually you may be the most tolerant generation and the most open-minded to issues of race and other forms of inequality, but you've got to be careful that you don't do it on the condition that it benefits you when other people are not around and when other people are. Let me give you a very perfect example. 
People say to me, David, I've got lots of black friends. I say, congratulations. Absolutely amazing. How many of them have you taken to meet your granny? How many have you taken to the family barbecue? How many have you taken home for dinner? How many have you taken to a family wedding? I've got a friend, has been a friend with somebody for over 40 years. She's the only black friend to a white friend. All the white friends have been to meet her family, but her best friend who's black hasn't been to meet her family. I call it performative allyship. How is it, that you, a Christian, how is it that this person is your best friend, but they never met your extended family? Yet all your friends that are white have met all your, all your extended family, including extended family and meet in different countries. The reality is that there is a benefit for the friend being a friend to you because of who you are and what you represent. And we've got to call this stuff out in the same way that Peter, or Paul called out Peter. And when we start to see people act in a way that's performative, where they're not following through on their agenda, we've got to be courageous enough to say, this has got to stop because this is not the purpose of God. Now you might say to me, well, David, you're sounding very uh, social, political and everything else. Mm -mm. Remember we're talking about the book of Galatians. How does it start? In Galatians chapter one, the apostle Paul says, listen, you're in danger of believing a gospel that is no gospel. What Paul is saying to the Galatian Christians is this, if we don't get this question of the law right, and you still seek to live by the law as well as the finished work of Christ, the gospel that you preach is not the gospel that Christ died for. Let's substitute that with race. Is Paul not saying similarly, if the gospel that you believe is not a gospel that confers dignity on people with black and brown bodies, if that gospel is not the gospel you believe, is Paul not saying that can't be the gospel that Christ died for? If we substitute race for law, the same arguments in the book of Galatians stand. That if we don't take seriously the call for racial justice, we are not taking seriously the call at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we try to act as if we are, then we find ourselves in a very similar position to Peter where we're being performative in our allyship rather than being absolutely genuine. The issue of racial justice is not an issue about political correctness. It's fundamentally an issue about the gospel because Christ died to break down the middle wall of petition between Jew and Gentile, which is symptomatic or representative of different people from different groups, different cultures, and different contexts. And so this evening, or this afternoon, we're, we're faced with a challenge. And the simple challenge is this. When God challenges you about racism, and God calls you to be accountable in the way you either treat people who are different, or collude with the way that people treat them even though you don't agree with it, God says, actually, that's got to stop. You might not be the racist, but if you don't challenge the racist, you're as guilty as the racist. I've done a lot of work with gangs. And uh, in London, there's over three to 500 people. There's probably more now, a few years ago. There's probably, probably a thousand, thousand plus young people that are in prison. And they call it, some of you may be lawyers, they, they call it joint enterprise. Joint enterprise is simple. If you're in the same vicinity as someone that you know that commits a crime, you're going to prison with them. 
If I'm here and Joe commits a crime and me and Joe are associated, the police arrest him for murder, I get, arrest, I get arrested for murder. That's what joint enterprise is. The reality is the same is true when it comes to the way we deal with people with difference in the church. If we stand by while people commit the crime of racism, which actually is an act of violence against the image of God. Because the Bible says everybody's made in the image and likeness of God. Black people too. Asian people too. And the Bible says if we do an act of violence against that image, then actually God's got to hold us accountable for it. And if we stand by when somebody else does an act of violence, God has to hold us jointly accountable because it's a joint enterprise, because we refused to do what, Peter, what Paul did to Peter and to call him out and to challenge him on what God is saying and doing. I'm going to start to uh, wind down in a bit. So the challenge we've got today is to say this. I'm going to spend time alone with God asking him to speak to me about the condition of my heart when it comes to race. But I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to ask God to give me the courage to call out racism when I find it. And calling out racism doesn't mean firing a red flag or letting off um, a, big, a big noise when something happens. Calling out racism simply means we've got to ask questions and ask people to think about their actions. Think about the consequences of their actions. Think about the processes of their thinking. Think about the assumptions that they make when they, um, can I have the slide of Amy Cooper up please? When they, when they start to make decisions. Now I'm gonna show you this lady. I'm gonna wind down in a moment. Some of you would know this lady. Um, uh, do you know her? Anybody know her? Amy Cooper? I call her Amy Uluwa Kemi Afua Marcia Cooper. People say to me, why do you call her that? I said, oh, she's brilliant. I had to give her some African names because in Africa, when you do something significant, they give you a name that indicates the value of what you've done. This lady, you know what she did? If you research Amy Cooper, she is a Democrat. She's an advocate for civil rights. She's a major donor for the civil rights movement. She's an advocate for allowing African-Americans to have affirmative action in order to get the jobs that they didn't have. She, on all levels, is an advocate. She's an ally. But what happened with Amy is simply this. The moment the social norms were inverted, she no longer had power when Gerald Cooper challenged her about a dog being loose in Central Park. And as I was saying this morning, you have to realize Central Park is what they call a contested space for African and Caribbeans. You must know the story when they see us. It's a story about five African Americans who were arrested for the murder of a white woman that was raped in Central Park. Donald Trump put out an advert saying that they should all go to prison. That's not a political point, it's a fact. Now what's interesting, Amy Cooper was in Central Park. Gerald Cooper asked her to put her dog on a leash in a conservation area where they can watch birds. She refuses. He then says to her, you've got to do it because he's, an, uh, he's very much into birds and he's saying, look, we need to respect this site. She picks up the phone in Central Park and she tells the police, I'm in Central Park and I have an African-American male that's threatening me and my dog. What's very interesting when you watch the video, there's no threat at all. He's saying to her, there's a sign, you've got to keep hold of your dog and you've got to have your dog on the leash. What is interesting about Amy Cooper is that on the surface, she's an ally. 
But when she gets into a situation where social power is being removed from her, the performative nature of her allyship comes out. She made a telephone call to the New York Police Department, inviting them to come and deal with the situation with Gerard Cooper. Fortunately, they didn't arrive. As I said this morning, later on that day, um, George Floyd was killed in Minnesota. It's almost as if what didn't happen in Central Park, if you play the video, Amy Cooper calls the police, the police don't turn up. The next thing, George Floyd has got a knee on his neck and the guy's dead. Almost as if what was supposed to happen in Central Park didn't happen, but it happened somewhere else in the country, in Minnesota. And what this lady taught me was this. Performative allyship always betrays itself. And the reason why I call her Amy Afua Ulua Kemi Marcia Cooper is because in her actions, she showed without a shadow of a doubt that every white person knows the complexities of racism. And they know it to such an extent that when they want to utilize it and weaponize it in a social context, they're more than able to do it. But they will always claim, I don't know what racism is. And it starts like this. I don't know what racism is. Tell me your experience. And I refuse to tell people my experience of racism. There's enough data, there's enough stories, there's enough anecdotal evidence, there's enough research data. You can go to the cabinet office and the disparities unit that have got so much data that you can do a whole PhD on it in terms of what's happened with, African, with black men in the UK and black women, Chinese communities and so on. But yet, when you start to talk about race, the first thing that you hear is, tell me your story. And I say to people, don't tell your stories anymore because you're actually bleeding out in public and no one's doing anything about what you're bleeding about. If you wanna know what the issues are, go to the race disparities unit, go to um, the National Office of Statistics, go to local scrutiny reports from councils, and they will tell you what they are. They will tell you what the issues are. But don't plead silence or ignorance like Amy Cooper did. And in pleading ignorance, she betrays the fact in a telephone call that she's not as ignorant as she makes out, that she knows how to create a condition in a social environment where a black person who's innocent and treating her properly is going to be criminalized and potentially at risk of losing their life. That's why I call her Afua Amy Marcia Cooper. Because what she did is simply this. She let the cat out of the bag and she let everybody know that when we're dealing with race, the first thing African, African Caribbean and Asian people need to do is not buy into the myth that nobody knows what race is got, what's happening with race. That's not a judgment. Every white person, every black person, every Asian has got enough evidence, enough experience to know what is happening with race. The challenge is whether we're going to give ourselves permission to spend time with God and to allow God to deal with us. One last point on allyship before I close. There's a slide with three pictures. Please just put it up very briefly and I'll give you it's literally. No, next one, please. Just a bit more. That's it. I don't know if you know this guy on the left or the lady in the middle or the guy at the end. I won't take too much time. This is uh, Bishop Eccleston. In the middle is Marilyn Monroe. And in the end is Donald Woods. This man at the end, Bishop, Nelson Mandela said he did more to remove apartheid in South Africa than even the black people in South Africa themselves. He became a cultural traitor 
he was despised by the British establishment, even though he was a bishop in the Church of England. Marilyn Monroe is with um, Ella Fitzgerald. They're sitting down, and uh, Ella Fitzgerald wants to sing in a, in a club. And the owner says, no way, she can't sing. Marilyn Monroe comes along and says, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you let her sing, I'll sit in the front row every night, knowing full well that everybody's going to come and Marilyn, and because they want to see Marilyn Monroe. So Marilyn Monroe turns up every night, club is full every night, Ella Fitzgerald is able to sing. This guy at the end, Donald Wood, was a reporter of a national newspaper in South Africa. He's the one who smuggled out the book and the film Cry Freedom, uh, Steve Biko, the story of Steve Biko. These are people, this is true allyship. It's not what Peter did. When people are present, we're in solidarity. When people are absent, they're not. These people gave up their lives. These people used their social power to push people who are marginalized into the center because they realized it was the right thing to do. And only one of them is a Christian. And everyone knows Mar uh, Marilyn Monroe for the alleged interaction entanglement, according to Jada Pinkett, with somebody else. I won't get into that. But the reality is, this is true allyship. And we need to be careful that we don't allow allyship to be a privilege for us that allows us to advance in our careers, allows us to advance in our leadership, even allows us to advance in our social profiles when the people we're supposed to be standing in alliance with don't actually benefit. I could say much more. I'm not going to. We're going to close there. Three things you need to do. Get alone with God. Be on your own roof with God about this issue of racism. When God speaks to you, the Bible says the next day Peter was thinking about it. Spend time thinking about it. And then watch your defense mechanisms. God says to Peter, eat. Peter says, no, I'm not going to eat. The moment you refuse to do what God says to you about, about racism and it's your defense mechanism, it often shows you that you're colluded with something that you shouldn't be colluding with. And then Galatians tells us that actually, if we don't deal with the issue of racism, it's not about black versus white. It's about Christ versus the devil. It's about the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. It's about a true, authentic expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.